Welcome to Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through cyberspace with conversations that are candid and are about human behaviour and technology. Brought to you by Kath Nibs. Welcome to Cyber Synapse on a very opt summer day. Um, this is a recording that I am doing with Olivia James to, um, to complete the se- uh, season. So uh, this might be slightly longer than usual because uh, Olivia and I do tend to talk a lot. Um, so first of all, Olivia, thank you for coming and you know doing yet another conversation with me, um, this time for the podcast. And I will introduce you as uh, a coach who is mainly dealing with um, public speaking, phobias, um, but you and I know each other through um, the, the kind of therapeutic intervention of something called IEMT, which we might get round to, we might not, because mm-hmm. um, we've got loads of other things to start with. So why do you do what you do? Um, I really, really... Um have a problem with people suffering unnecessarily um so when i was a kid i was really bad at like higher hand eye coordination Mm -hmm. i was really pants at like catching or throwing a ball and i know how frustrating that is so when it comes to people with anxiety and phobia around something that they should be able to do i really love helping them sort of with that interference that's stopping them from doing consistently what they what they should be able to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, the I'm, I'm just thinking about so the the fact that I've introduced you around phobias and um, public speaking uh, didn't mention actually around trauma because we do share a lot of um, commonalities around trauma yes. and a little bit of thinking around that. But also this is to say so what what you're really looking at is something that a person could do should do. And sometimes they fail at it or they can't even get started. So you, you, you're the pattern interrupter? Yes. Yeah. Well, if you yeah. like. But yeah. without, without, the NLP, can have, without the NLP connotations, if you please. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I'll tell you what, that takes us straight in on a conversation <laughs> that we've been having recently about the coaches um, and, and some of these uh, kind of cliche bullshit statements. So... Um, which we will now refer to as BS misconceptions. <laughs> so, how do yeah? How do you do, how do you do what you do then? And uh, especially, let's just think about public speaking because that is pretty much the biggest fear of a lot of people, isn't it? It's it's the idea of having to talk in front of others, and you know sometimes getting what we call stage fright or yes. not even getting onto the stage. So you know how do how do you work with that? How do I work with people? So, first of all, I will take a history and I'll find out, like, what their trauma history is. Because often, as you know very well, like, people have a massive, like, psychological and physiological load they're carrying. So often certain situations can trigger a, a survival response in them where... In fact, the situation isn't life-threatening, but their nervous system is reacting as though it were. Mm -hmm. So even uh, I was working with a a, a personal trainer uh, last year on her her sales anxiety, for example, and it turned out she'd been in an abusive relationship where her partner had bullied her and criticized her for everything that she did. So no wonder she had a fear around putting herself out there. Mm. So often when I work with somebody, I'll find out, 
if it's a public speaking thing, for example, like, tell me about your most epic fails. Sometimes the person will be speak, standing on stage in front of 100 important colleagues and go completely blank. So mm-hmm. I will take a history and I'll also find out, normally in a, in a relaxed sort of conversation, I find out, so tell me about your, are your parents still together? And I find out about all the family stuff and the trauma and the early work stuff. And so basically I take a history and then I start to treat some of those um, some of those negative memories that are contributing, but also I will, I will actually coach them. So I do a mixture of like therapy and coaching. So I do therapeutic interventions on the, on the trauma and then I give them resources to help them so that when they, the next time they do public speaking, that they cover their proverbial behind. So yeah. they're, they're fully prepared, they're fully practiced, they're fully ready in case something goes wrong. They've given themselves enough time. And also then, I teach quite a lot of self-compassion about like sometimes people beat themselves up so much that I was talking to a, a, a client who's um, like a senior, like senior person in a very large global organization who every time he has a bad time in a meeting, I say, well, do you remember when your kids were like, you know, learning to ride a bike? Like if they had a wobble or fell over, would you say to them, well, you're a flipping idiot, like you're, you know, would you, because yeah. a lot of people, the negative self-talk is something that we don't often talk about, but that is running the show very often and adding to the tension, <laughs> right? Yeah. You'll find this, I found this in your therapeutic work too. So uh, that's pretty much what I do with people. So, and we have, a, I use a bit of a provocative approach. So we all laugh at some stuff and I will go right in there and I don't shy away from people will say to me like you don't shy away from the difficult stuff mm-hmm. I sort of go right in there as quickly as I can basically <laughs> yeah well it's it's um so I'm I'm uh, uh less well-mannered than you in terms of saying it's calling bullshit on the bullshit it's almost like the why are you doing that um so I think my my favorite kind of comeback is uh no shit you know, if a, if a client says something like, oh, I'm, I'm really kind of like, and they'll describe themselves. And I go, no shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've been working with you long enough. Yes. Um, but let, let, I'm just going to jump back to that, that, criti- that kind of self-critic. Uh, so one of the reasons I now pay somebody to edit my podcasts is because it got really difficult for me at one point because I was obviously listening to myself and I will do it after this. I will kind of do the playback and I'll think, oh, I spoke too much. Why was I giving that? Why did I say that at that point in time? And then I have to do a lot of self-compassion and go, well, that's because we're having a candid conversation. We're not sitting in my therapy room where I'm in a controlled space doing interventions at a particular time. Um, And I get excited. I jump in. I interrupt. At times I go 20 to the dozen and forget that the other person's supposed to speak because I'm just kind of buzzing and bouncing off them. And it's it's really horrible. It's it's a really horrible place to be. So obviously when you're sitting with these clients um, and, and they say, you know, I'm so hard on myself. Yeah, I get it. I get it. I do it to myself. So, of course. And often they'll... As soon as I get them to admit to the inner critic part, they they will still go. Um, one client I did IMT with was like, I said, so what conclusion did you come to about how clever you are? 
And she said, well, I'm not very intelligent. I said, come on, what would the 13-year-old, at which age you, you decided this? Well, she mm-hmm. said, well, I'm thick, aren't I? So then you go straight into the language of like, or they call themselves a mother flipping idiot or whatever it is. Like, yeah. so often that they, it, it takes them a while to actually admit to me like what they actually say. So they might say, oh, well, I'm, I'm a bit cool to myself. But they, they say, like, I'm, I'm a flipping idiot, basically. You know, mm-hmm. I'm a loser. I'm a waste of time. Nothing ever, nothing ever works for me. Like, da, da, da. So, it, and that's when, when you start to deal with that stuff, then you can really start helping somebody. Because as long as they're talking to themselves like that, any therapeutic interventions or coaching changes are going to be much harder because they're going to be so tense. It's a bit like if you're trying to teach somebody, uh, I don't know, drawing, and every time they they make a, they block their copybook, you you hit them around the head, which is what people used to do with kids, right? Mm-hmm. You're yeah. proverbially doing that to yourself every time. Then of course it's going to be much more difficult for you to do it right, and also you won't you won't enjoy it in the end. Well, yes, I mean, so I'm I'm thinking here that that. Um, in TA language, we call these injunctions, and in, so it depends on which kind of orientation you've trained under as to, to how you how you describe this. Yes, but I think what I what I normally do with uh, my client is if, a, for example, a child is doing the drawing and they say, "Oh, I'm stupid," or "I'm this, that, and the other," it's usually a very short sentence, isn't it? Like that lady that you talked about, I'm thick, and I usually go, "And whose voice is that?" Because it's pretty much what somebody has said. And then the person kind of swallows it out. Well, it must be true because yes. I've got no, I've got no cognitive argument. I can't, I can't sit here and go, well, actually, no. On this occasion, I didn't get this sum correct. You know, that doesn't make me generically thick. A child will hear that one sentence, and it becomes their their exactly. inner voice. Yeah. And ain't it cruel? These these inner critics are horrendous. They are. And I think so. You're an expert in cyber trauma and often these keyboard war keyboard warriors that say hideous things to other people what do you think that they're in a critic to themselves is like horrendous uh more than likely yes yeah, and 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 also when somebody is being let's call it cruel on the internet generally what what you'll find is there is and I'm going to go off on a slight rant now so there is a theory called the disinhibition effect and it it kind of says that because you have these cognitive processes you will behave in a cognitive way and I go nah because when somebody says something that's provocative or evocative you react with emotions you don't come from a cognitive place so more often than not people will say something in retaliation they will say something to make somebody go away. They will say something because they're feeling hurt. And it's, the, it's that old adage of hurt people hurt. Yes. And believe you me, when you are in a fight or flight place, you can say some of the most horrific, hurtful, uncompassionate, unempathic things. And right at that point in time, you do not give two shits what impact it has on the other person. It's only afterwards. And then... Not only have you got the fact that you said it, now you've got the guilt that, oh my goodness, you said it when you were in a, um, I don't know, an emotional state, but also you've got the fact that you've said it when, duh, 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 duh. So those people who, and, and it's usually called trolling, those people who do flame, who do troll, who do kind of cyberbully, 
what they actually find is that now they've got their self-critic telling them about the things that they've just done. And it's, it's, it just compounds. So there you go. It's, uh, there we are. That's the... the... But I... <laughs> yeah, I have been asked on a, a number of occasions, but don't, don't people who troll and cyberbully sit down and, and intentionally want to cause harm? Some of them do, yes. Yes. Most of them are in that fight or flight space. So... And it's like, um, I think it's sort of like, it, it's sort of a way, it's all, for some people, I think it's a displacement activity as well. Mm -hmm. You always think, well, have you got nothing better in your life than, than sit there being a keyboard warrior? Like, you know, there's a, there's a brilliant episode of South Park where uh, we, we talked about South Park the other day. There's one brilliant one where there's the expression the turd in the punch bowl. And we we're going to be talking about this a lot more later, later, hopefully. But there's another one where the dad, he's a troll. And at night, when his kid's wife and kids have gone to bed, he just sits there and has a lovely glass of wine and he just spends ages trolling. And it's like his way to like de-stress from the day. Um, yes, it's one of the reasons why <laughs> if I have a glass of wine, I put my phone down because I am known to be quite reactive. Uh, it, well, sometimes I just get comedic and say that, you know, it's that, it's that filter, isn't it? The one that, the, the uh, inhibitory filter. So where, what did I say the other day to somebody? I just went, ah, well, that'll just be you being a normal da 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 And then afterwards I thought, oh, what happens if they read it the wrong way? You know? and, and actually because I'd got a friendship with this person, I was talking to them on their profile yes. in the way that I talk to them when I'm face to face. And then afterwards, it was, it was like 10 minutes and I thought, no, I've got, to go, I've got to go back on that profile and write, yes, Kath is taking the mickey here. Because it, it, it might have seemed really, I don't know, off, off the cuff to somebody else reading on this exactly. profile. And, and it's really interesting how quickly I realise that I do things and don't do things and then have to go back and make amends. And, and yeah, you, you, you don't think, hang on a minute, I commented about somebody's thing the other day. And, I, and exactly like you said, because I have a bank of trust with that person and we have a, like a history, there's things I can say to them that they're going to totally get. But on the public forum, how is it going to look to other people? Um, yeah. And so that becomes quite exhausting. Um, there is the other thing, of course, like certainly there is loads of stuff I see on social media where I just think that's complete BS. But I don't go in and comments because I do not want to be getting any kind of, I have enough, I'm too busy. Like I don't have time to get involved in massive like uh, backlash, like comments and stuff and Twitter trolls. I mean, I think there are loads of like bots on Twitter now as well. I mean, Yes, uh, I, I'm <laughs> just, for those listening, I am absolutely wetting myself here because I have a funny feeling that we're kind of scooting around the houses on a conversation that we had the other day. We are, well, in a way we are, but we, we will, the thing is, uh, it's a bit like uh, when, I, when I get a testimonial from a client and because I've been there in a the session with them, there is like what they've said to me, in our session and what they're willing to say publicly, right? And this is where we are now, um, my, my honourable friend. This is exactly where we are, basically. Yes. It's like what you're prepared to say publicly, 
where the record will show that this is what you said. At the same time, I think people like you and I, we do have a duty of kind of like, well, I think there is a moral duty to say, call out BS where we see it, if we think it can be actually helpful rather than just doing it just for the sake of it and because to make ourselves feel and look wonderful, like we're, we're the all-knowing, all-seeing, um, <laughs> you know. No, I think... I think for those that are interested, um, I basically um, called out somebody's post on social media for for being extremely cliche and pretty much suggesting that, you know, um, self-esteem was really easy to, in air quotes, hack. Um, and I've, I've seen this a number of times uh, with the, it's easy, you just, and then and then it's the one-line cliche. And I'd, I'd actually responded to somebody and said if only and, and it was done with a sarcastic tone I, I did say um, and I actually said if it was only that easy then there would be no need for all the therapists and the coaches to do the training that they do with the expense uh, at which it costs them uh, because this person's post was very much about um, it's easy you just for example smile in the mirror and then the rest of the post was all about their their uh, their famous clients and their their um, popularity. Let's call it popularity and how how good they were. Um, and one of the things that we talked about, Olivia, because um, there's only there's only a few people who, who kind of know about this, is what then happened was this person decided to visit my website, contact me, telephone me, and then text me as well. Um, because what they wanted me to do was apologise for having a difference of an opinion, uh, which they didn't get. So for those that do know me, they didn't get it. Um, and actually what did happen was uh, this person was schooled in NLP and tried about four different, let's call them interventions, to try and get me to say sorry, um, which was a really, really curious thing to have happen. Um, but at the same time, then kind of, uh, and I think the term is mansplaining, told me how to use social media and what I can do on social media, but clearly didn't read that part about my job, research, et cetera, et cetera, on, on my profile, nor on my website. So it was, a, it was an interesting phone call, to say the least, and text and contact and so on and so forth. And this, this is what we're talking about, isn't it? Is that on, on social media, yes, there are people, um, particularly in like that South Park example, they are there to literally just sit and make other people's life a misery on the internet for many reasons. And then there are those who are um, upset, offended, um, and then there are those that are affected by things really quite deeply. So, and, and you know, that's the spectrum of what it is to be human. Yeah, it is. So, you and I are both all about the Vegas nerve. So, uh, so for... Somebody who's in like ventral vagal or social engagement, we're getting really technical now. Mm -hmm. People in that state who aren't like super like uh, uppity or they actually find with a difference of opinion, they can take it. Yes. They can and they, they can be curious about what somebody else might be thinking and they won't get offended by it necessarily. You know, and some people there seems to be certainly on social media as well, this idea that, that 
anyone who has a different opinion, I need to just block them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Or I have to convince them of my opinion. And there seems to be, like, a friend of mine is a speaker, talks about, like, uh, strong ideas gently held, I think. So there is this thing about, hey, somebody has a different opinion. Well, they, they might be a bit of a fun, my friend's talker. Yeah. Uh, well, but the good. thing, the, the problem I think that you and I both have with this is that if somebody reads that advice and they have a serious problem like a serious trauma and that advice doesn't work for them and it's meant to work, then they feel even worse. And I think that's what certainly I have a problem with and I, I suspect that, that you, have, you do too, where some of that really pat sort of motivational bro advice is is meant to work and it, it just doesn't and yeah and i mean as, as i said to this this um gentleman um he he that was a nice way of talking about him wasn't it that was very kind of me so there is there is this thing about he he wanted to talk about those those cliche one-liners and that they do work um and he then started to have a word with me about positive psychology and 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 again not not kind of taken into account that when, when you're going to actually phone somebody up and, you know, school them in their job, you might want to see what it is that they've studied in the first place. But he, he said, you know, there's evidence for the one-liners. And I said, correct. There's also evidence for one-session therapeutic uh, sessions. You know, Eric Byrne talked about these, the one-session the one fix. But also, there is this other polarisation of... But that isn't good for everybody. It doesn't work for everybody. It's the, and this is why I, I stick with that N equals one. We, we can have generic advice and theories and that. However, for somebody with a deep-rooted trauma, you really have to do deep work in yeah. lots of different ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about on the internet when you were talking about the vagus nerve there, it's, it, there is a whole heap of polarisation and there's something known as, and this is going into my geeky circles now, the internet of beefs and the internet of beefs is basically a theoretical proposition that there will always be somebody that you cannot speak with because they will not hear your point of view mm-hmm. and it's it's a closed um so in 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 uh, therapeutic situations or, or even when i'm talking with my children when you're trying to have a conversation with somebody and they keep giving cul-de-sac statements which are those things that have they're very closed there's no there's no room for you know exploration so I'll give an example of so you know how was your week this week it's all right and and that's it there's like a big full stop at the end that says I'm not going to talk to you about yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. but those those kind of moments are really difficult to have a conversation with people around and, and I think this is what happens on the internet is people get into a physiological state and they close down to, to being able to have a, a debate or a reasoned argument, you know, without, without screaming and shouting at each other. And then it turns into these kind of polarised, um, well, spectrums, you know, people who are, you know, and this is where you hear the, the terminology, isn't it? Far right, far left, blah, blah, blah. And it's about that bit in the middle. So I'm really into something called the intellectual dark web at the moment, which is all around... Um, being in that middle zone and not accepting the far right and the far left in terms of conversations, approaches. And it's about having that, having that ability to feel all of the feels and be able to listen to all of the different viewpoints mm-hmm. without it triggering and without yes. sending you skewed and out, out of, 
if, if you like, that window of tolerance? I think there is a brilliant, there's a book by Evelyn Waugh called Scoop, and there is a character in it who says, uh, up to a point, Lord Copper. I think up to a point, because some of the stuff you're going to see at either extreme are going to be, you're not going to have one, I certainly wouldn't have the bandwidth. Even me, when I'm on my best day, when I'm feeling the most groovy, as I call, like, social engagement, there is stuff on the outside of the internet that I, that's too much. Mm -hmm. Correct? Is that, would you agree with that? I, I want to say yes and I want to say yes and no. Do you know what I mean? There's me, Miss Indecisive. Um, yes, there are extreme behaviours, but because I've been researching and in this domain for a long, long time, I, I think the internet is just a place for any thought that's ever been thunk. There is now a website and forum yes. dedicated yes. to it. And to quote my friend, and there's probably furry porn of it as well. So yeah. the, the, idea, the idea of the internet is this space where... Yeah. Humans absolutely show all, all their parts, and that includes those dark sides. And there are some really effed up, messed up sites and people. Yeah. And there is something around. And I'm really curious about, so if that exists on the internet, how many eons of, of I don't know, psychology have we actually missed where we've never spoken about those things in therapy? And where, you know... Yeah. Where, in and they, they say they might have a fetish or a penchant for something well now you can find a website and now you can find others within the world who might have that shared experience yeah yeah so mm. yes i i do see the massive the massive differences and the massive kind of things that make a lot of people squirm want to vomit i don't always understand it but I'm quite curious to understand what's behind it and why, yeah, yeah. why that exists. Um, and I think for me, that's, that's what the internet has done, is it's revealed that actually everything that we used to keep secret and, and phenomenologically um, tucked away, there is now a space and place to explore it. Many, many things have come to mind. Uh, one of them is this, this maybe slightly off topic, but you know this idea. So obviously my mind goes to the darkest bits of the internet, goes to like paedophilia, goes to child abuse, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I know that, that you certainly um, deal with uh, people who've been abused. Um, and so I've got a therapeutic question about this. You know this idea that... Um, Evil therapists go around implanting memories of child abuse on people. You know that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what, what's your take on that? I think, well, I actually think, so uh, what, I, what, I talk, what I'm about to talk about here are the, those therapists who are in the role because they want to hear and get a kick out of, so I'm going to call them a voyeuristic, a voyeuristic therapist and I know I know of a number of them who who work with particularly um it's usually that that awful stuff yes so I'm talking about the awful eyes in now um so they do work in and around child sexual abuse they work around um torture rape Mm -hmm. and what what they're there for is to hear those gory details now I think what does happen is those without without having 
I'm just going to say it as it is, those that don't do their own shit first get muddled up in the transference and counter-transference of what's going on with their clients. And I think what they can do is they can ask questions to elicit listening to what happened in the sexual abuse. So um, it's, it's interesting. People will say to me, how do, you, how do you listen to all of that horrible stuff, Kath? And I say, I very rarely do. Because I don't need to hear the gory details yes. of something that's happened because I'm working with the physiology. I'm working exactly. with the mathematics. And I think in, in a decade, I've probably had three maybe four people tell me what they wanted to tell me. Now, they have their own motivations for doing that. And there was something about honouring those motivations. And yes. I said some very, very cruel things. But I don't really need to hear that level. And I think the therapists or, or I'm going to put coaches in there and, you know, quite a few other people. What they want to do is hear that somebody else's story was either worse than theirs or it's something they think they can fix them with, or they actually get a psychological kick from hearing about this kind of stuff. So, you know, it's the same. It's pretty much the same, Olivia, with those that that are um, interested in telling their stories. Of of Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah. I made made up a couple of words the other year, um, and one of them was traumology, and it's it's those people who are stuck in their own trauma or need to be in other people's trauma, mm-hmm. and it's through the the retelling. So, I know of people who like to tell their story on a stage, and as they're doing so, they're scanning the eyes to see who's wincing, who wants to vomit, who's grinning, who's on. It's almost like who's my tribe, who's on my team. But there's there's also something really deep, dark psychologically awry with people who do that and oh i know so uh, i i find it fascinating what you said so far um there's a there's, i've made a couple of notes because there's, there's a there's a lot there um so why not so i did um i'm trained in a, a technique called uh, well we're both trying trained in imt which the whole thing about IMT is that the person can have this memory of whatever horrible thing it was. Mm-hmm. We can do the procedure on them. They don't have to tell us. Sometimes afterwards, they still want to tell you what it was. Yeah. yeah. Right? But it totally isn't necessary. Other times, so one of my other techniques is um, therapeutic tremor work. So I spent like, you know, talking about, yeah, I spent a year. I, I spent a year like getting qualified in this thing. Like it wasn't like just a weekend course, right? And yeah. so my supervisor used to talk about a thing called the Trauma Olympics, where people would come and we would do like this practice together. And sometimes this, I remember one um, occasion where there was about 30 people doing this, this thing. And one woman came and she said, basically, she said the equivalent of, right, you mother flippers. You better just listen to me because I've got complex complex PTSD and none of you mother flippers have been it, had it as bad as me. And basically, mm-hmm. that was her identity and that was her way of getting tension. Now, the yeah. more she practiced, the next time I saw her, so there's a body-based therapy, it's somatic work, basically, body-based, and it just yeah. helps you. The next time I saw her, she was way more chilled and she didn't really feel like, that have have to hold on to that identity so much, you know. So it, it's, I think you're right. I think there are there is um, there is a there is a lot of sick stuff around 
platform. I know uh, certainly I, I, I'm sort of I'm in the professional speaking world as well, and I know there are some professional speakers who have made a living of basically telling their story of this mm-hmm. horrific thing that happened to them, and yeah. they fly around the world talking about this thing. Now, I and they're well, well, I'm here to um, remove the stigma. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's all very well. But like you said, in that audience of like 100 people, there are going to be people, be people that have never talked about their abuse. Uh, yes. They're going to get triggered. But where is, the, where, is the, where is the care for those people? Yeah, I've watched that so many times. In fact, I ended up, um, I ended up blogging about it because I was at uh, an e-safety uh, uh, conference and I'd, I'd got up and talked about my bit and, and one of the things I don't do is I don't talk about my clients I might talk generically about there's a lot of young people yes. who suffer but I certainly don't go into the internet and I do get asked a lot at conferences you know afterwards people will say so have you ever spoken to something have you ever um and what does happen is when you're a speaker in this kind of realm let's call it that um people will come up and self-disclose because they feel like this is now the person who might listen to yes. my and witness it and so on but I have seen on so many occasions um, what what I refer to, uh, it, it's called the crumple button. And the crumple button is like a little self-destruct button. And that's the one that gets evoked by somebody telling their story. And I'd been to a big digital safeguarding conference and I saw an ex-copper come on and basically start to tell again ego-driven in terms of this is what I've done, this is who I am, this is how, how well-known I am, da, da 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 and then said, and I'm going to show you just what it's like for all of the people on the internet. So it was a scare, um, uh, very much a scare uh, lecture. And then I'm going to show you just what happens with these children. Oh, and by the way, here's, a, here's an interview with a perpetrator. And I was like, uh, where was the warning? And at this point, I just turned and looked at the audience and I could see people literally going, how the canal do I get out of here? Now, I actually had that, and, and I think this comes from an experience I had where I was attending the Stephen Porges couple of days lecture, and it was, it was brilliant. And he was talking about some 1940s and 50s experiments that we used to do on animals, and da 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 da. da. And suddenly, I'm I'm sitting in this this row, and I thought, oh, I feel really warm. Oh, I feel really sick. I think I need to get. And of course, this is going on for me. And I hadn't twigged at this point, right? And I, I hadn't twigged because I'm listening to his lecture. And what was happening is my body had remembered something that had decided on a tangent, it was going to kind of um, associate itself with what Stephen Porges was saying at the time. And I, I, so pretty much it was to do with uh, my guinea pigs being eaten by foxes when I was quite young and me going out and, and witnessing the carcass. And, you know, my, my dad coming yeah, out yeah. and well, the foxes have got them, you know, uh, and, and being quite young, it was traumatic. Yeah. But I'd forgotten about this. I had no memory, if you like, of this. And then Stephen Porges was talking about this, these things with animals. And one of the one of the slides happened to show rats, mice, guinea pigs, da, 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 da. And away my somatic memory went. And of course, I'm sitting at the side of my friend. And she goes, are you all right? And I went, Phew. I said, I've just realised what's happening. I said, it's totally fine. I'm just going to take a few deep breaths. Don't worry about me. And of course, I'm sitting there thinking, shit, I'm a grown up with uh, working in trauma. And here I am. I've just had something yeah. become associated. Because yeah. that's, that's how brains work. 
And then to fast forward to, to the reason that I wrote the blog, I was then sat at another e-safety conference and this was an ex-head teacher, I believe he was an ex-head teacher, showing what a wonderful e-safety person he was by scaring the living bejeez out of the people listening to his talk, only to then show a picture of self-harm, of children who have self-harmed. No warning. And I, I was sat at the side of my friend and I kind of just put my head towards the table and went, oh, for fuck's sake. I went, why do these people do this? And then I said, you know what? I know why people do that. I know what's happening. This is about, look at me. I've made you all remember my talk because I've shocked you and cyber traumatised you in terms of what I think you need to know rather than asking people in here if they would like me to show the picture or does people, you know, it's, and part of this I do in my training in terms of why, why we get such a kick out of it. And it's, it's to do with the drive of curiosity, the drive shock and awe, the drive for um, listening, learning and being around trauma because actually as human beings, like at Olympic, we are drawn to trauma because it's the thing that we associate with, that's what I need to do to avoid dying. So, brilliant example, Steph. So, this balance, Have, right? we, have we turned on a you now interviewing me? <laughs> yeah, I think we have. So this balance, we're having a discussion. Yeah. So this balance of, obviously we need to talk about mental health. We need, people need to be aware of things like suicide. People need to be aware of rape. Yeah. So where does, where would you say the balance is in a way that, that somebody can tell, possibly tell their story about being violently gang raped without possibly telling a whole audience all the gory details well which yeah and it's sort of where the balance of like this is my story this is my truth uh i want to remove the shame and the stigma um and i want people to know that you can recover from this and at the same time not unnecessarily traumatised people. Where would you say the balance is there? I think going with something that Brene Brown, you actually kind of nearly nearly said it earlier in terms of uh, Brene Brown talks about having a strong back, soft front, okay? So the soft front, and, and this isn't how she means it, but it's how I've interpreted it to, to kind of say, the way that we can communicate this is we talk about ourselves. We yeah. talk about, um, so Bessel van der Kolk will say, this really horrible thing happened to me and it no longer has an impact on me. And when we're communicating, there are horrible things that can happen. And the, the, the way that this is, um, is we don't dress things up in uh, language that isn't quite fit in, in truth. So we, I'll give you an example, child sexual exploitation. Doesn't that sound palatable? It, it kind of sounds like, oh, we all know what that is, but nobody actually knows what it means mm -hmm. because it hasn't been communicated as... Um, and I'm, I'm now going to do it in a way that might traumatise people listening to this, but it's child sexual abuse by many perpetrators on many occasions, and it results in children sometimes becoming drug runners, etc., etc. right? It's really not a palatable thing to say. So what we've tended to do as a human species is scare children, you know, and we started with the stranger danger, you know, don't go out, don't talk yeah. to people because, but then we give them mixed messages. But if you're lost, go and talk to somebody in a uniform. Well, which one is it? And 
children are naturally curious, talkative, and what we don't do is we don't educate them in, in the ways to pretty much use their, their vagal system. We don't give them the, the per permission to do that because we start with this idea of um, you can say no and you can look after your body and you can, you can decide what you want, but you mustn't say no to nana, granddad, auntie, uncle, if they want to give you a kiss goodbye. Exactly. So it's, it's about boundaries and consent, and we need to start with that a little bit earlier in terms of allowing children to say no without it pissing us off as the adults, because that's usually what it's about. It's not about the child saying yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. It's usually they're not conforming to our demand. Yes. So there is something about we can educate and we can do it in a way that's gentle. We can do it in a way that explains what the problem is with the right kind of language without it becoming terrifying. And it can be empowering and we can use it in metaphorical stories. That's one of the easiest ways to educate because that's, as humans, that's what we've done for millennia. We, we listen to stories and stories are the things about there are unsafe things in the woods. Be careful because there are bears and bears can kill you. So we don't go in the woods where we think there are bears. But if you want to explore, here's how you can protect yourself from bears. And that, that seems to be more empowering. And that means that we've really got to have conversations with children. And, and we've got to have conversations with people. But also to ask, ask permission. Are you okay if I tell my story? So my story is about, you know, um, for example, some very violent and graphic things. And in order to tell you those things and how it affected me, I may need to explain what they were. Is that okay? Or as I put out on Twitter this one time to this therapist, take it to therapy. Take it to your therapist. Stop shouting about it in the public domain. There is, there is a, uh, one of my fellow professional speakers talks about speaking from your scars, not from your wounds. And I think for some speakers, the actual standing on stage is part of the therapy uh, but what, what like, like you said, what concerns me of all those people in the audience, there is going to be, I mean, if, we, if, you, if, the, if the, the debut statistics are quite phenomenal, uh, so literally probably at least half of the audience will have had some sort of abuse. Would you? Uh, I, well, yes. I mean, one of, the, one of the figures I give when I'm teaching is the, the NSPCC and um, there's, there's a number of pieces of research uh, happening at the moment around child sexual abuse, one of them being a massive inquiry. And they, they proposition that the statistics are one in, one in eight boys has been sexually abused in some way, shape or form. And I'm going, hmm, that's one in eight that have actually phoned up somebody or told somebody, yes. which means there is likely another child who hasn't told somebody or in the statistics of this particular report, it was actioned or noted by social care. So how many people tell somebody else and nothing's ever done? And I go, well, that then makes it probably, let's call it two in eight. And I go, so that's one in four. Now we're starting to talk the statistics. And if you consider what sexual assault is, it's probably higher in that. So maybe we're talking one in two or one in three. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And in an audience of 100 people, there's 70 people in there, at least, who have some form of trauma. Yeah. But then we've got to consider that we live in a world where lots of different things are traumatic. We've got television programmes, which include the news. So, for example, we've all just suffered a collective trauma 
where the BBC and the government and ITV and all of the other channels decided to share a lot of information at an um, inconsistent rate, which is one of the things that adds to trauma is there's inconsistency. And they were giving out mixed messages, which is another thing that adds into trauma, that there's no consistency, no, yeah. um, no kind of, uh, what am I going to say here? The consistency, persistency and resistancy. Um, but actually because it came at us in the way that it did, we've all suffered some form of trauma about COVID. Exactly. I think one of the definitions that I was given by the person who trained me was like, it's like something that's overwhelming where the person feels that they can't take action. And I think COVID certainly had that, where people were like, this is coming at me and I, I can't get myself out of this. Often I, people, when, it, when it's a physical trauma, certainly if there's been an attack, if the person's been able to do, take some sort of action to get themselves out, their recovery rates tend to be a lot better. With this collective trauma of COVID, I think it has been like a wave where people have felt that they couldn't really do anything. Um, so I think that adds to it. So you're saying so that the media have really perpetuated this where it's been out of our control, what's come to some extent, what's come at, at us. Yeah. And, and, you know, as and I've even I did a blog on this as well, because I said it's the biggest cyber trauma to date. And it was created by the best of intentions. Yeah. Where most traumas. Yes. It, it come from in, in. So I know I know we don't label small T's and big T's anymore. But if you think about a small trauma. Actually, there was lots of them day upon day. So today you have to stay in, but you don't have to stay in, but you do. But you have to wear a mask, but you don't. But you can go to work, but you can't. You can catch the bus, but you can't. You could talk to your friend. And the parents then had to try and explain that to their children. Yeah. And for me, that's where, that's where I've, I've witnessed so many little ones. And I, I'm watching it around the supermarket at the minute that little ones are, their eyes, they're like little bush pandas. They are massively mistrusting of a lot of people around them at the minute. And I'm just watching their, their nonverbal behaviour going, yeah, COVID did this. COVID did this. Now, now we've got children going, no, you can't. Yeah. You know, really tight, um, tight bodies connect, and, and their hands kind of pushing away at somebody. Don't come near me. Or parents going, ah! and pulling their child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and if you think about kind of the vagal response, these children have no idea why they're now being pulled. Yeah. Way from another human being who six months ago was safe. Yes. So we've got attachment traumas. We've got cyber traumas from, you know, the best of intention. Here's all of the information. Yeah. Five things going to kill you. And that was, that's what we fear the most, isn't it? It's going to kill us. And not only that, they then showed videos and talked about just how slow and painful it was going to be as well. Exactly. I've got a lead follow-on question about that, actually. So I was talking to somebody the other day who uh, had COVID very, very badly, uh, was being interviewed on the media and also on, at the same time, and I, this person was, had been having flashbacks. Yeah. Uh, so it, it seems like quite possibly he's got PTSD. I know that, that this has been a factor in a lot of people that have been hospitalised they, they've, they've ended up with uh, post-traumatic stress, yeah. injury yeah. or disorder, whatever you want to call it. Um, 
So the doctor who was on at the same time was saying, oh, yeah, we, well, we're going to be offering counselling to these people. So there you go to your face. Tell me what you think, Dr. Cow. Well, number one, uh, I think it's probably a better option than giving them nothing, which yes. has been the go-to, which has been the go-to um, for many, many years in terms of mental health, because trauma is not seen as a mental health issue, but PTSD is because the symptoms that you can kind of tick off in a checkbox. So I think, uh, number one, I think the counselling has to be trauma, and, and I'm not going to say trauma-informed because I think that's another bullshit buzzword. <laughs> but let's, let's call it, we need to be trauma-embodied therapists or trauma-embodied coaches, trauma-embodied workers, because I don't think having an awareness or being informed about something is enough to, to make the impact that we need to. Um, and, you know, I, I see it up and down the country in terms of people go on a one or two day course and suddenly they're, they're trauma, trauma informed and yet haven't, haven't got the knowledge on what that actually means to work with this kind of trauma and what it does somatically, what it does. And I'm going to go on my my role here about in, in terms of epigenetically what it does to uh, the potentiality of heading towards illnesses medical issues etc etc and knowing what are the things that you need to be looking for but also what it does to a person and how how you can't talk your way out of trauma ah, well, so we knew we were going to get to this again but you can't talk your way out of trauma you have to have a multidisciplinary approach there needs to be many different interventions and many people throughout your, your process and your healing journey. And I think for people that have had an illness, um, and this is what I see, so I've got, um, I'm a, not a trustee now because we're, we're a, it's a CIC, but the organisation that I'm involved with around uh, gaming and cancer, yeah, there's, there's a whole heap of impending death after you beat an illness. So that person now knows that they could have died. And that now means that every time they get a cough, a st it, it, bang, they will be back into their trauma. And it's going to be really difficult to work with that in terms of just doing a little bit. So tell me how you feel. Did you say gaming and cancer? Yes. So um, there's a, um, a, a non-profit organisation been put together. And uh, I know the, the, the person, the, the CEO, if you like, the director, the founder, whatever they're calling them nowadays, um, he was gaming during his cancer and we're looking at um, how we can try and educate people that gaming is actually a, a godsend. It's a, it's a life gift for a lot of people. And, you know, I'm very much into the positive aspects, being a gaming therapist. Um, I'm into the positive aspects of this is one of those interventions you can use with and around trauma. Interesting. Um... So you're, what you're saying is counselling's better than nothing, but it's only a small part of, of an actual solution that's going to help somebody. I yeah. hate that word, holistically. It sounds all a little bit candles and sandals when talk, people talk about holistic. But well, it's, but it's buzzword bingo, isn't it? Sandal, yeah. Sandals, candles and, and your little tick box. Oh, it? God, I've got another question for you. <laughs> so what you were just saying about trauma embodied um, Stuff, which is very much what's missing in the uh, the most motivational bros that give you all the uh, you know give you all the one-liners, which is basically like 
And a lot of what those bros tell you, let's call them bros, uh, say a little bit, little bit, um, why am I being misogynistic? No, I'm being, yeah, what misandric. am I being? You're being misandric. Sorry, I'm, you're, you're I'm, being, a... <laughs> I'm being misandric. Bad. Um, so, so a lot of what they're doing is they've got this model of human beings that you tell this bit something and the instructions go down and are are obeyed and carried out. So uh, just feeling great, uh, unstoppable. Um, mm-hmm. Just imagine the audience naked. That's another one that people get told when they have a public speaking phobia. Like all this stuff that 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 goes in here and it's meant to just the instructions are meant to sort of work. Yeah, and top down does not work if it can't get past the gateway to go into the body, and yes. bottom up doesn't work if it can't get to the. T- and this is, this is the thing about um, my my favourite part of the brain, which is the cerebellum. And so many people talk about the prefrontal cortex. Da, 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 da. Actually, there is a gatekeeper, and that gatekeeper is the one who allows the information up and down. That's where the information's got to be, and it does work through top down, but it needs to be it needs to come top down to the cerebellum and bottom up to the cerebellum. Okay, got you, Miss. All right. So now the next question. Well, I yeah. was going to ask. I was going to ask you one actually. Um, go on, now. When when we were talking about those different interventions, I know that you uh, practice along with the IEMT. You practice tapping as well. So I do. Yes. Emotional freedom technique. So, and again, that's that's kind of getting into the somatics and working on the meridians. It is. Um, uh, and I'm just wondering, what other what other techniques do you have? For trauma. So what, what kind of toolbox do you have? For trauma, mm. like I like to think that my therapeutic presence is very good. So without rapport, you've got nothing. Mm-hmm. So that is very much often overlooked. And to some extent, when it comes to trauma and any kind of therapeutic intervention, I think it's the quality of therapeutic relationship and your rapport matters probably more than the actual technique that you do. Yeah. That's my sense. So mm-hmm. if a person like one of my supervisors calls it like a proper therapeutic process, he calls it like the most beautiful kind of reparenting. Yeah. Uh, so to me, the, the rapport is key. Tapping can be very good in combination with the rapport i think a lot of tapping a lot of people who do tapping are barking mad a lot of tapping looks ridiculous i think i personally don't think anything good about the setup statement of the even though blah i deeply completely accept myself i think that puts a lot of people's backs up i think that's complete nonsense um but what i find with tapping is that um it tends to send calming signals to the amygdala. It sort of tends to smooth things down. Uh, I pretty much teach this to all my clients with anxiety and it just helps them tone things down. And I also get them tapping while we're doing the interventions. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a process that my colleague Steve Wells has developed uh, where you use different statements to help them release it. It's it's a combination of logosynthesis, which is by William Lammers, who's a Dutch psychologist. Uh, so there's like different ways of using tapping that actually work. I mean, I think tapping, uh, NICE have just recommended it for research for PTSD. 
Yeah. I think there's a lot of people saying it's uh, it looks ridiculous and it looks barking, but I find it really really works. So for trauma, that's only something I do. IMT for me is like that. If I could only do one thing, if I had to all my other therapies, I could only keep one. My desert island therapy it would be IMT for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do things like. With you, you're talking about epigenetics. I also do some systemic approaches where you look at like family dynamics and stuff. And there's often like things like held in the system and there's unconscious loyalties and weird stuff and family traumas and stuff that, that I think that therapy, the sort of the constellation approach sort of reaches parts that other things can't. It's like the Heineken therapy, if you like. Yeah. Um, then the, the final thing for trauma that I do is the therapeutic tremoring, so the body-based thing that I spent, like, uh, so that's a way of getting the body into, like, a natural tremor, and it starts to, like, just settle, and it releases, like, physical, and sometimes, I mean, I did it with the guy who'd been in prison for six years, and he, he, he basically, the amount of trauma that was released in just one session with him was unbelievable because mm-hmm. he in in this prison situation when you're in a really violent prison you can't show fear so yeah. this guy was watching the most horrific violence and wasn't able to react so a lot of that was stored in his system so with a thing like therapeutic intervention and tremoring that stuff could get released it like you said it, it without going into that conscious bit, sort of like very somatically. Um, so yeah, they're my sort of main kind of things. Yeah. So that the TRE is kind of based on uh, Peter Levine's work, isn't it? It's, it? It's sort of like somatic experiencing. They're sort of coming out of the same sort of like thing. There are other approaches. Of, of one of my colleagues does a thing called vegetative training, which comes out of the work of William Wright which is a body-based psychotherapy. There are lots of different ways of getting the tremoring going. So there's another, the Resilience Toolkit, which is uh, my supervisor, she's developed that, which is another way of, there are lots of different ways to get the tremors going. So TRE is just one of them. Yeah. Uh, But but the the key with all of those tremoring things is to, to make sure the person doesn't overdo it, because often they just think, right, let me just get rid of everything. They'll tremor like crazy for like an hour and then they'll cry for 24 hours because they haven't like regulated it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It can well, get overwhelming. That's the, that's the point that I was going to come back to in terms of, um, so when you were talking about the therapeutic clients, as, as we call it, that has been shown consistently in research to be the thing that, that heals. Now I'm just going to quote Bruce Perry in terms of, the way that we the way that we heal is through relationships. Yes. And whilst I was saying earlier, you can't talk your way out of trauma. Most, I think, most therapists don't recognise themselves as the regulator of the other person through relational safety, because that's what it is that we're doing. We create the safety, you know, and we do that with our nonverbal yeah. communication, and then that person feels safe enough to have the witness listen to their story. Definitely. And I'm, How, I'm uh, yes. Do you want to say something else? Because I've got um, I've got a comeback for you, a tennis comeback for yeah. you. Well, that was that was what I was thinking earlier, actually, in terms of that, and this happens all the time, doesn't it? When when you kind of fizz buzzing, that actually the thing that people do when they're telling their story. So remember this traumology, telling their story in front of a hundred people, 
there's something about maybe that person needs a hundred witnesses to feel validated, whereas another person may only need the one therapist to sit with to say, this is my story, this is what happened. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, there is a lot around, there's, there's two things. One of them is like certainly within the therapeutic relationship also a huge amount of damage can be done if the therapist doesn't quite have the bandwidth or the good intentions or the, uh, the capacity, the, the emotional capacity mm. They, there, a huge amount of damage can be done in that relationship because there is so much trust there and it can be broken easily. When you're talking about the relational thing, so there's a brilliant book I think I've recommended to you before uh, called Blind Betrayal by Jennifer Freed, who's a psychologist, and she talks a lot about the betrayals are often the deepest traumas where somebody's been betrayed by somebody it, it could be much deeper than like a physical thing like a physical yeah. accident a betrayal can be cut so deep because in those relationships if we can't trust those then it really shakes our view of the world mm-hmm. now in that book when you re- when you read it i remember exactly where i was i listened to it as an audiobook of my i think my supervisor recommended it and I was walking near uh, near Harley Street. I was just, I have my headphones, so I was listening to this bit. And there's a bit in the book where she experiences a massive betrayal. And I was just, it almost stopped me in my tracks. Um, and that happened, I think often what happened, the, the reason the book is called Blind to Betrayal is that often a very traumatized person will have betrayal happening but they won't quite see it so you'll see like a family like a, a wife who whose husband is cheating on her and she'll see the lipstick but she won't see it mm-hmm. like there's because a part of her survival depends on everything being fine and i think sometimes even with with like with child abuse that people will sort of see it and like things like within the catholic church don't tell me nobody knew about that stuff you know what I mean? Like, don't tell me. And so there is a, a huge amount of betrayal that can happen, like, systemically, as well as in the, in the therapeutic relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, there's something about um, getting, getting clients to recognise that. So, so, for example, let's go with the, um, the wife comes home, sees the lipstick, and, and you know, in a, in a therapy session might say, and I came home, and I'm sure... I'm sure that he's cheating or I'm sure of so-and-so. And, you know, my response might be something along the lines of, I might say, ouch, you know, ow. That's really got to, and it's that idea of, but it's all right, because actually what I'm going to do is da 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 And you can see, you can see how people do that thing where they make it okay. It's, it's like I say, it's like tidying, tidying the nest. You kind of just, just fluff it up a bit. Make, comfy the pillows, fluff yeah. them up a bit. It's fine. And what, what that is, is that's a defence against, if I have to face this truth, I'm going to die inside. Yes. Isn't it? I'm, I'm going to die inside. So I'd rather not die inside. I'd rather face the pain of not knowing. Or yeah. I'd rather face the pain of, you know, the, um, in domestic abuse, the, the, the physical beatings or yeah, the, yeah. the plates being smashed or whatever it is. I'd rather that because there's comfort in chaos 
and to deal with the issue head on means I have to face that betrayal and then I have to be on my own. Exactly, exactly. And I don't know if I can, basically. Mm. Um, question. Talking about therapy buzzwords. So you're saying trauma-informed, do you prefer trauma-embodied? I, uh, I, I think there's a process. I think there's trauma-aware, where, and this is what's happening at the moment, so we're becoming aces-aware, aren't we? We're becoming a nation yeah. that's learning about the aces. Well, there are, there, is, there are problems with aces, too. Uh, there's, there's, I, <sighs> don't get me started. The research, <laughs> the research is it's, it's a conversational starter. For oh. the people listening... Uh, ACEs are uh, called adverse childhood experiences, and it's a scale to, to develop somebody's propensity to develop PTSD and trauma. But there, there are problems with it. Um, but it's, yeah. it's a way of looking at things, but it's not the whole story. Like all models, it's sort of they're lacking. Um, shall we say that? <laughs> um, yes, what an underwhelming way to talk about child trauma I think it's just so yeah. it's and it, it's not been done on purpose the, the the study was done because they were looking at the the men, uh, the medical outcomes for certain people and they were trying to find a, a if you like a correlation oh look when this happens then we can see that this will happen in later well, life well, this, did this come out of the work of Nadine Buck Harris no no it was before no, she's just a spokesperson. Right. Like So in 1998, I'm trying to think when the original research was done, but 1998, Letty and Ander did a piece of research where they retrospectively asked people before the age of 18, did any of these things happen? And my, the whole piece of research has been done from a non-sociological, non-psychological basis because they said things like, have you ever been hit, kicked, slapped, punched, yeah, yeah. hated at? What well, which one? Which one is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five options there, but then you're given this sometimes, always, never. Yeah, well, yeah. Which one is that? And the way that people are asked conversations about being younger, what I can tell you is if a child grows up in a household where there is what we might call abnormal or um, inappropriate, or, you know, these kind of lovely words where we go, well, that's really kind of abusive, but then we don't detail what it is. That child isn't always able to recognise that they came, that they grew up in a dysfunctional, abusive, emotionally abusive. It, they don't categorise it like that because that's their normal. Yeah. So when when some of these questions were asked, I'm not so sure that a they got all of the, the answers that they would have done because people give what's called socially desirable answers. Yeah, they would yeah. have said, "Oh, sometimes." When actually it might have been a daily occurrence because, ouch. I think part of Part of it, there is like, a, for a lot of people, there is a loyalty. They don't want to sort of self-hails at school. Um, mm-hmm. I think one person pointed out, you know, I think we're, you and I are both in a, a study group uh, about the Vegas term, and somebody pointed out one of the, 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 the limitations of the ACE model is that, so the idea is like if you've only got one, then you're groovy. But it might be that you were sexually abused for years, but that yeah. was the only yeah. thing that happened. But nobody shout, nobody was mean to you or, hey, what about it? You know, but so it's like, and then according to the model, that means your, your, your rates of developed heart disease are lower, your rates of developed mental illnesses, addictions, all those things are lower, but that's obviously okay. not, not exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've, at, 
uh, at a conference that I did and then a presentation that I did for the, the safeguarding, organi uh, safeguarding board for um, my local town, I've talked about it's a great conversational piece, but number one, it is not a tool to diagnose. Um, and I particularly dislike when people phone up and they go, oh, Kath, will you see this child? They've got an ACES score of four. And I go, I'm not interested in the ACES score. Take it off the referral paperwork. Yeah. What I want is a chronology. I want a chronology of what's happened for this child. And I want significant events. But those significant events are for me to find out with the child what impacted them? Because do you know what? They might have moved house. Yeah. Oh, significant event, Kath. And I go, do you know what? If they lived in a village where there was no food and, I don't know, bears used to come in the house every day and um, the, the local neighbours would come round and smash the windows and they moved, that's a good... I mean, it's a positive... Let's call it positive. Let's not put the shame-based words in there. That's a positive, uh, significant event. Yeah, yeah. You know what they've moved away from that trauma if however the child has moved away from all of the friends all of the support network you know and they move into an area where it's you know the bear the no food that's not so good that doesn't have a good positive impact in fact that's more likely to cause an event and the way that the aces are put together they're classified as equal and i'm sorry but some of these things are not equal no, no, no. in terms of impact but it is a good conversational starter. So we've yeah. got, like I was saying, on this process, you've got trauma aware. And by the way, this is the process that I've made up. So, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know if it's a good thing, a bad thing, whatever. But you have um, uh, trauma aware, trauma informed, trauma embodied, uh, or trauma applied and trauma embodied. So trauma applied is for the people who can actually apply the theoretical framework and then... When you've lived it for long enough, you become trauma embodied so that you automatically know in terms of what you're working with and how, how that person needs you to be. So providing that relational safety. Right. That makes sense. All right. Another buzz, bullshit buzzword thing. So, you know this term, oh, this therapy is evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Basically, implying that everything else is BS. Yeah. So that this is just randomised control trials for yeah. most of it. Uh, and, and do you know what? It's pretty much the medical model. So if the medical model can, and, and the medical model, just to give it a very easy, understandable way to think about it, is cure rather than, or prevent is part of it, I suppose, but cure. And cure means 0.01% less chance of it coming back. So the idea is, is you can be cured of cancer, but you may still have cancer in your body. But if there's a 0.01 chance of it coming back or, or there's a very small percentage, then you could say effectively under the medical model, you're right. cured. So here's the thing about a lot of these interventions. Um, so I'll go with one for trauma at the moment. So there have been a few new age interventions of using psychedelics. So psilocybin. Um, yeah, microdosing yeah. of, yes. And one of the things that's starting to come out of some of the literature is it works whilst they're doing the study, but do you know what? These people then get their depression back or they get their... Or they, yeah, it's not a cure-all, but one of the things about evidence-based therapy, so let's just go with uh, EMDR, because pretty much that's the one. So EMDR is that waggle your fingers, yeah, follow the light, whatever, whatever kind of modality somebody's uh, doing it in. And a person will go for 
12 sessions. And in that 12 sessions, they will work through their trauma. And at the end of it, they're asked, you know, how do you feel on a scale of one to 10? I'm making this very simple, by the way. So you're asked like, how do you feel on a scale of one to 10? Oh, brilliant. Do they then follow that up five years down the line? Probably not. But what they do do is they create these randomized controlled trials by sending people into different um, interventions. And some of them have a placebo, some of them don't. And all people are divided up supposedly equal. And then the results are compared. Oh, look, with this intervention, people said they felt better. Therefore, on this occasion, we could say that it was a, a good intervention. Now, the thing about people is they're complicated. Really, really complicated. You're not looking at biology, which is, has the cell, almost, let's call it, um, ejected the virus? Yes or no? There's no in between. It might be a bit subjective. It either has or it hasn't. So a lot of the RCT uh, protocols for doing therapy are subjective. You're yeah. giving answers about, has the, has the depression gone? Well, today it has, yes. How about you come back in five years? How about you come back? Because one of the things we know through other studies is that depression is a reoccurring uh, mm. incident. And usually where people have studied it, when it comes back the second, third, fourth or fifth times, they can be longer, um, longer lasting um, times. They can feel more, uh, more depressed each time the depression returns. And for me, there's something about we really need to get off this, this quantitative measure of human beings and we need to start looking at what really matters. But you can't really do RCTs with qualitative Mm. because the answers are too broad and you will only ever get correlations. And the thing about prescriptions, the thing about interventions is they need to put the funding where the evidence looks like it works. And therefore we tick the box. Yeah, Not that I'm yeah. cynical in any way, shape or form. No, no, no. I know. I know. Uh, so one of the things that sometimes I will uh, see a client who's had, uh, like, who's, who's had CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, which is meant to be one of the evidence-based things. And like I've done a lot of, uh, I've, I've, as part of my continuous professional development, I've been to like a ton of demonstrations of CBT. Mm -hmm. Now to me, there are limitations with it and often people will be put on an NHS waiting list if they have an anxiety disorder for example there's another question yeah. for you yeah. <laughs> and then they're they're told yeah well you just have to go on this waiting list and you're going to have eight to ten sessions and then that's all we can offer you that or medication basically mm. um what's your take on on that well again it's one of those tools that's appropriate for people who find it appropriate at the time have you, ever, have you ever met somebody who's been to CBT and comes to see you six months or 12 months after they've been to CBT? Because the, yeah. the first sentence I usually get is, yeah, I tried that CBT. It was yeah, 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 yeah. Or it worked for six weeks or it worked for a short time. And you know what? Then I had to go back into my daily grind. Because yes. A, and I think this is where, and I'm not, I'm not completely dissing it because the idea of think, feel, do is something that I use under yeah, a TA framework that we are made up of you know these different things that we are which is we think we feel and we do so we have behaviors we have thoughts and we have uh, you know our emotions 
and I, I tend to come from uh, pretty much a William James approach in terms of uh, biology, like kind of psychology, biology. And what I see is it can be really helpful, but just giving, and I'm going just, giving people homework or getting them to look at one particular aspect without the, the potential of exploring what the other two factors have to do with the third factor doesn't really go far enough because no. the feeling also includes all of the psychosomatic, it also includes the historic, yeah, it yeah. also includes the biological. And the think is to do with how somebody is thinking in that time of their life. So there's and a- I, and I, Yeah, I think you're right. And I think sometimes your thinking can be affected by your physiological state. And of course, yep. um, like Dorothy wrote, I'm pretty sure I read years ago that Dorothy Rowe used this term shitty thinking. And like a lot of what CBT tries to get you to do is think about things in a less, like say I've had a breakup and somebody's broken my heart and I decide all men are bastards, right? Mm -hmm. So CBT will say, well, don't you think you'll feel better if you can think that way? And uh, do you really have any evidence that all men are bastards and all this? And it tends to sort of, it starts to break down some of your own shitty thinking. And to some extent, that can be helpful. Um, it can but, also be shameful. I've, I've yeah. noticed. I've oh, noticed. It, exactly that, that, that dude. What I always say to people, is like almost like you're sort of gaslighting yourself by like, so, and one of the things that I do in the therapeutic process, I think I alluded to it earlier on, is like, I will deal with what's there, what they're actually thinking, what they're actually saying to themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying, yeah, you're a, you're basically you're wrong because you're thinking like that and that makes you wrong and they start to internalize it and think oh god i shouldn't be thinking this (laughs) i mean it's patterns of chronicity isn't it yeah 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 and and for me sometimes i i would sit with a client and when again with this idea of if they say oh well you know all men are bastards i would be interested in where did that thought come from okay You could challenge the shitty thinking in terms of, you know, and have you got any evidence for that? Yes. Or you could really challenge it and go, where's your evidence for that? Yeah, yeah. One of them is going to evoke further thinking, further critical analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next one is going to kind of evoke, well, where's your evidence for that? Because it's it's rubbish. I'm poo-hooing what you think. Yeah, 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 yeah. And for somebody to go through that, it's I find it easier to do the what-if statement. And, you yeah. know, keep going, what if? And um, my my therapist used to say, and then what, and then what, and then what, and I used to be and and I used to get frustrated with her actually. So this was early days of therapy, and I was like, what do you mean? And then, so well, this is going to happen, and she said, and then what? Well, then that'll happen, and you you actually drive yourself to a point where you go, yeah, this is getting a little bit kind of uh, I don't know, fantasy based or yeah yeah yeah, a little bit ludicrous right now. And at that point, then you can interject with the humour and the kind of challenge. Yeah. There's something about a person has to do that for themselves. You can't, you can't walk them down the lane and go, there's the water. You've got to say, I wonder what's at the bottom of this yeah, road. Yeah. And some people exactly. will go, yeah, I'm not going down there. And I think sometimes I find this with people, like, some people, you can do that faster and other people, especially if I, if I have a client who's like a high-up corporate person who's never had, had any kind of therapy, I have to go much more slowly than yeah. somebody who, uh, who 
I have a, a like more of a depth of like therapeutic relationship with whose case history I know much better, who are yeah. who is used to like exploration. <clears throat> and then I can go much faster with them. And I think different, it's a bit like um uh so I have a, my background is in, in linguistics. So there is like a whole thing about eliciting yeah. mm-hmm. responses and some clients will elicit a certain response and approach from you. Yeah. And other ones you sort of have you have to I mean you have to sort of like really adapt to like how how comfortable and how far and fast they are it's comfortable to go because you don't want to overwhelm them with yeah. going too fast. There's that word trauma again. If exactly. you go too fast, you're going to traumatise the person. And and there's something about, this is what I mean by that trauma embodied. What what you're saying there is that when you're sitting with people, you will you will inherently know. So there's a, there's a knowing within you. I or, hope so. <laughs> uh, yeah, that this, this person he is engaging with this particular style of intervention and this particular uh, level of questioning. So let's let's change the challenge and see how they manage. Yeah. You know, it's the idea of, um, so I've actually heard counsellors refer to their clients as it's like pulling teeth. Why would, you know, number one, why would you talk about your client in that way in, in terms of, well, if it's like pulling teeth, you're the one that's getting it wrong because clearly they're not engaging with you. Or you're not the person for them. Yeah. Or you're... Oh, oh, Olivia, you couldn't possibly say that to a lot of therapists because, you know, they uh, there is this inherent arsery about that I've done the training of course I can fix everybody I've spent 20 grand training with with this guru yeah dude uh you know what I mean like (laughs) that that's the thing I mean I've always said this um I know people who have got uh master's degrees PhDs all the qualifications you could imagine like written lots of books they are really rubbish with people. Yeah, all the gear and no idea. Some people, I think, to some extent, you either you're good with people, and I think that that um, you have a cat. Yeah. You have a pet. You know, it's a little bit like you're good with people, you're good with pets, you're good with animals, and you can't really train for that. Like, and I think so. If you're if you're naturally suited to being a good therapist, then additional training can really help you. But if you're rubbish, then you're just going to be not very good, even with all the qualifications, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> um, yes, and, and the thing is, is because, and I know that coaching isn't, and I know that certain certain sports areas aren't, and I know that <clears throat> there's, there's lots of professions that aren't regulated, I think... For, for us as a profession, and, and I think to date there's, what, 237 different modalities. So, you know, these, these people who are coming to us in distress, whether we're coaches, therapists, you know, it doesn't really matter what, what title we have, you know, counsellors, psychotherapists, there's a lot of arguing at the moment going on about whether we can use those terms interchangeably. Apparently, you can call us, anybody can call themselves a psychotherapist. Oh, okay. It's unprotected. Okay. I don't use that term. Yeah. Uh, because I don't feel that's what I am, but I could call myself it, but I don't feel that's what I am. I call myself yeah. a therapist and coach because I, uh, but it's problematic, shall we say? Well, I, I, I worry 
sometimes not that i'm going to save the entire the in, entire species but i do worry sometimes about these people in distress that go to somebody who is working beyond their remit and yeah. and does that damage that we talked about but i also know do you know what people are really quite um and i, I don't want to use this other buzzword the resilience but people are quite resilient and at some point they will recognise that their their therapist is not for them or their coach is not for them or their dentist is not the right one. or And it might take people lots, lots of... It time. might take them years, like in that book I told, the, this Blind Betrayal book. There's a yeah. horrific bit where this woman finally realises her therapist is doing way more damage than good. And says, I can't do this anymore. You know, I just... And that in, in itself is a great therapeutic breakthrough. <laughs> well, do you know, one of my favourite things is when, when a child says, oh, I don't, I don't want to come. So I talk, when I, when I first introduced children, and I say, and when, when you think you don't need to come anymore, all you have to do is tell me. Yeah. When I think you don't need to come anymore, I'll ask you if that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. aware that children don't always have the, the autonomy and yes. uh, um, potency to say that. So when a child says to me, um, I don't think I want to come next week, I go, brilliant. That means you can tell somebody that, no, yeah, you can tell somebody, and I'm not offended whatsoever. Yeah, I just yeah. think, da, 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 da. you know, if you don't want to come anymore, I think that's brilliant because that means you're ready. And, you know, the, the grins and the smiles on these kids, oh, my God, I've just, said, I've just told somebody no, you know. And, and it, it, can be, it can be very difficult for parents because I'm like, right, they're done. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, uh, what, was the, what was the term that we came up with uh, when we were doing the eye wiggles? Uh, I'm baked. I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> I'm done. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I'm done. Uh, because there is only so much we can bake. <laughs> that is, I really, really miss, like, with the COVID thing. It's so miss not being able to do that with clients. Like, I haven't found a way of doing it online of you. I, I was asked, now, I haven't done uh, any any kind of IEMT, mainly because I'm working with children um, uh, who are slightly too young, I'd say, for some of these processes, because yeah. their intentional um, ability isn't quite enough for me to be able to do some of the, the um, interventions. But I was asked when I was doing my training, do you reckon we could do this uh, online? And I, it, you know depends on what size screen you've got and it depends on what size screen the other person's got it certainly isn't going to work on an iphone because you just don't have the capacity for your eyes to make the mo movements that they need to so i think it isn't really the best modality for doing iemt I and it, it really annoys the hell i really annoys me because i love doing that with people as part of like uh, the whole thing and so often, with, with, say I'm doing uh, like a session with somebody with like stage fright. So I worked with a woman who'd had a really bad experience. Um, she's talked about this publicly. So she'd had a really bad experience. She'd done a TEDx talk and it'd gone really badly wrong. And she'd gone like blank on stage. And after that, basically, she became really phobic. Mm. And so I did a combination. We did like a really long like session and like we did some eye movement as part of it we did some tapping we did some like you know other stuff and literally after that she did a keynote to 700 people at excel center in london uh, like i just know that the x the, the imt was a big part of that yeah. where it can be so quick and i think one of the this is getting a little bit technical now but i think one of the things with the imt with the, the, the eye derivations where the, they have that little blip 
I think that's where it, it wins over EMDR because I think it's, it's more subtle. And people will, obviously, there's a, people, a lot of people that will argue over modalities and stuff. I don't know what your take. I know that you're pretty surprised at how effective it was. Um, yes, I did go in quite cynical. Yes. Um, I did go in quite cynical and was like, yeah, all right, because, you know, I'm a bit cynical about a lot of things, mainly because I think... Uh, I think it might have been the line from Andrew Austin who said something along the lines of, we're not quite sure how it works neurologically, but it works. And I'm kind of like, I am that squeaky wheel that goes, no, I want to know why, how, when, if. Anyway, so, um, in fact, it ended up with a conversation, me and a coach that were, um, he said, do you think we should proposition to do some uh, kind of research with this? Yes. And I went, yeah, let me get the other stuff out of the way, but then I would be interested in the kind of neurological research around it. Um but anyway, back to, um, I'm really, really interested in eyes anyway. So just to give you a little bit of background, my, my early training in the army was around uh, day sights, night sights. So I've had to really study optics. So watching eyes and knowing what they do in terms of um, eye saccades. That, I mean, if, if I kind of told you the history of what I did growing up, I've worked with eyes all of the time, but without knowing it. So my undergrad dissertation was around uh, double negatives and I used an eye tracking machine to watch what was happening with people's eyes. Mm. Um, so it's almost like I've done the optics, I've done the light waves, I've done the movements, I've done how they work. And I'm now, which uh, will, will come out later on, um, part of my theory in terms of um, how, how and why we do what we do in cyberspace is based in what the eyes are doing in line with the device, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think it's massively important, to get back to your question, I think yeah. it's massively important what happens at those, and it's tiny little saccades. Yes. When, when you notice uh, somebody, for example, they go up to the top, uh, top right axis, and then as, the, as they sweep down, you can almost see the eye jump in terms of it, it's, the pathway is beautiful to watch. It really, it really, really is, and I don't, I don't think that you would get that in terms of working online. But I no. think, but also when when you're doing that person to person, I think there's also again, it's that relational safety for you to stand that kind of distance to somebody and say, you know, effectively, just follow my fingers. So what you're doing is a distraction technique to their body. And then, and then also when they get a little blip you sort of iron it out and you go, oh, what was that? And they kind of giggle. They go, oh, I don't know. And you sort of iron it out with them and it and mm -hmm. it does smooth things out. And when yeah. I, you're talking about being baked. So when I did my training, I think it was like a four, I think I did like the normal one and the advanced one all in one go in Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. And the amount of yawning, you know, when I, when you, when people do tapping, there's like a lot of releasing and yeah. I, I, when I was doing IMT, it was a ridiculous amount of yawning. But they were, the course, the guy teaching, of course, was laughing at me. I was yawning so much. And it does, I don't know, it, it does seem to do something really, really amazing. And what I love about it also is that, you know, the person doesn't have to tell their story. So you got the weirdest things, like the weirdest little memories and stuff come up. So mm -hmm. it could be like somebody... So somebody can have a speaking phobia and the, the, the memory, your your elicited memory, and it might be like the time that they were four and they didn't get an ice cream. Like the most mm -hmm. random thing, like 
But that somehow your brain, apparently what I'm, they call a transgenerational search, where it just finds that memory. Well, it, like, it's an associative, yeah, yeah, it's an associative process. And I'd be really interested in watching the videos um, of people to tie it in with the vagal nerve because uh, the orbicularis oculi is connected to the vagus nerve. And I can bet you bottom dollar that somewhere around the searching, there will be certain twitches of the uh, orbicularis mm, oculi. Interesting. So the, the, the kind of the research that we have to be done, would it have to be an fMRI type? I, I don't know. No, because I don't think that will pick up the, uh, it's not going to pick up the eye movements on the outside. But if you really want to get into the vagal nerve and see what's happening, better, then yeah, we're going to have to we're going to have to come up with because, like Anderson, I think has postulated that even the IMT changes the way the memories are stored in the possibly in the hippocampus. So I know there are memories stored in different parts of the brain. I think correct. So, but also there's something about the switching. Like, people think hemispheres are way oversimplified, but obviously what it does do is it switches. It's a bilateral stimulation, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That's part of what it does. Yes, and if, if you read around the work of uh, Richie Davidson, you'll see mm -hmm. what goes on in the two frontal lobes as well. Yeah. And kind of how they work together. But also, there is probably one of the best, uh, the best books I've ever read uh, to date. I am reading one at the moment on um, hem hemispheric connection um, by Gillian Jaynes, and it's, mm -hmm. it's a tomb. It's a massive book, and it's, it's um, called The Bicameral Mind, and it's right. how the two hemispheres first connected because they're connected differently in males. And the way, the way that males think, and, and again, at the back of the brain, just at the top of, uh, I think it's at the top of the diencephalon, and this is to do with how we used to hear voices and so on. We can't actually prove where these memories are stored and I'm going to go comma because uh, we've not a been able to actually locate it but what I do know is that Elon Musk and probably uh, open water are not far off from discovering those areas right. because they're already doing uploads into a cloud of consciousness and its processes and so on and so forth so th there's a lot we don't know about the brain but we are learning enough to do a lot of damage, actually. <laughs> we did, we're really, yeah, because we go, oh, well, we think we know enough. Let's just build something. Oh, shit, I didn't expect that side effect. <laughs> the, the internet. So I, I think there's, there's a whole heap here about um, what, what we could study, but I think there would have to be a really big study in terms of what's going on with the facial muscles, what's going on in terms of uh, kind of the, the EEG, for example, and what you could say at the point of the saccade, but it would need the practitioner to be kind of doing what they were doing yeah. and for a machine to pinpoint where those saccades happen. I don't know. Maybe I'm just giving loads of people loads of research to do, but I haven't got time at the minute, so. But uh, I would say it needs to be done. So the, there is a theory that the kind of the evil, the <laughs> evil um, pharmaceutical companies and the evil like uh, powers that be aren't interested in putting money into research. And this is partly why some of these skyrocketing new therapies haven't got the, the evidence because there isn't the, the kind of like the money behind it. Yeah. Would you say that's, that's pretty much where it's at? Yeah. And also, um, you know, if you, if you look towards some of these popular uh, evidence-based therapies, 
they tend to work in the services where where I call it the conveyor belt system. You know, you get six or twelve sessions, you're in, you're out, you're done, tick box. And the thing and the thing about like things like CPT also it's very cheap because you don't really have to train the person, they just read on the manual. Yeah. Well, and then we're back to those um uh bullshit misconceptions and what I was going to say earlier on is they tend to be a read regurgitate um uh and, and there's so many people that do that, aren't there? And, and then there is no, and there is no rapport. Yeah, there's no, there's no depth of connection. No. So I think yes, the, uh, the evidence-based stuff tends to be around stuff that they can they can quantitatively measure quickly enough to then put the the funding in place. So I know at the moment that there's a proposition that IAPT may be uh, being used for children and that CBT does get used for uh, younger children, but you can't really use it under the age of 12 because the brain doesn't work in the particular way. And yet, I'm seeing people using these kind of techniques with children that cannot critically think. So, again, use what works yeah. as the human being, but find what works for that one person. And that might mean that if you are a therapist, you have to have a huge toolkit in which to be able to work with the client and knowing that no matter how big your toolkit is, is there's always going to be one section yeah, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, I think, I don't know about you, but I think, uh, I think you've exhausted me in terms of questions. So right. It hasn't turned out to be a full interview of uh, Olivia James's uh, uh, skills in terms of asking you a load of questions. I think it has been quite role reversed, but we did talk about would be happy for me to do that this one time okay fair enough we can do we can do another one um you can you can interrogate me uh. <laughs> so um what i will do is say thank you very much for for giving your time because we have gone like an hour and a half and usually they're like 40 45 yeah. minutes <laughs> so we've way overdone in terms of uh this conversation but i think actually it's the one where i've got with you with you i've got to the nitty-gritty of some of the things about trauma yeah. as well so i'm going to stop the recording and thank you for your time Pleasure. this podcast was edited by rory kavanagh an audio enthusiast and music producer